It's no secret that we now live much longer lives than ever before. In 1900, average life expectancy at birth in the United States was 46 years. As of 2022, it's 78. And it will reach 83 within two decades, after accounting for the effect of the coronavirus pandemic. Americans who have made it to age 60 can expect to live an average of another 23 years, dramatically up from just 10 years in 1900. That's another lifetime within a lifetime. Western Europeans are even better off with a life expectancy at age 60 of 25 years. Asians can enjoy 20 additional years on average. And even in Africa, where much progress can be made, the number is already a stunning 16 years. In addition to greater longevity, we stay in much better physical and mental shape for much longer, the so-called health span. This simply means that a 70-year-old nowadays can pursue the active lifestyle of a 60-year-old from two generations ago. Welcome to The Ripple Effect, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the minds of work and faculty. I'm your host, Dan Loney, and in each episode, we'll be diving deep into the inspiration behind the groundbreaking research that Wharton professors have conducted and exploring how their findings resonate with the world today. We'll be covering a diverse range of topics, bringing you the latest insights and knowledge that you can apply to your life and to work. So get ready to dive into new ideas with The Ripple Effect. Great to be joined here in studio by Wharton's Moro Guillen. Moro, great to see you again. Thank you for inviting me, Dan. So the new book you have written is titled The Perennials, uh, The Megatrends Creating a Post-Generational Society. Give us a little bit of the backstory as to why you wrote this book. I wrote this book because the world is changing very fast, specifically in two ways. We're living longer and we're staying healthy for a longer period of time. And that kind of upsets the way in which we've uh, traditionally thought about uh, living our lives, which was to go from one stage to another. So first we play, then we learn, then we work, and then finally we retire. That is now an old model that is falling apart. And the second uh, very important trend is technology. Technological change is actually enabling us to do certain things that before we wouldn't imagine doing at different ages. There's an element that you bring in this book also that talks about the generational labels that we've kind of added into our culture over the last couple of decades. Uh, and, and you say that we're going to kind of move away from those from those labels in the future. What do you? Th why do you think that's going to happen? Well, we have to move away from uh, generational thinking because uh, they're stereotypes for the most part. I mean, generations are very diverse. And also the differences that we uh, attribute to different generations are actually not uh, real. They're, most of the time, they're fussy concepts. And uh, as you know, this has been informing for the longest time marketing, advertising, the way we live our lives, also learning. And it's about time that we actually started to think about individuals and their worth and their values and their aspirations as individuals, as opposed to labeling them part of a generation and then attributing to them certain uh, yearnings and certain goals in life. So then have those labels maybe not intentionally had some negative impacts along the way as well? Oh, absolutely. And uh, people, uh, as soon as they get labeled, let's say as millennials or whatever, uh, they revolt against that. Because again, that is kind of negating their individuality. Uh, how come everybody who is a millennial behaves in the same way? That's not true, right? Yeah. There's a very big difference between a millennial in New York City who attends college and a millennial in Iowa uh, who, uh, you know, uh, works on a, on a small farm. Uh, they are in completely two different worlds, and their behavior, I can tell you, is very different as well. How do we then move away from those labels? Because it would seemingly be quite the challenge to do that, especially since they've become kind of ingrained in our society. Well, because as human beings, we have this tendency to categorize 
and then to generalize about those categories. And this is just a human tendency which can be very, very misleading, if not destructive. So we need to work very hard at essentially recognizing uh, people's individuality and being a little bit uh, you know, sharper about uh, how we make uh, decisions in the world, not necessarily driven by generational membership. Part of this is also the fact that just our culture has changed so much uh, in the last couple of decades. When you think about what the family was, say, 30, 40 years ago compared to what it is these days. Oh, absolutely. Uh, for example, here in the United States, the nuclear family was uh, 40% of all households. Uh, that's uh, two parents and, uh, you know, most of the time at least one kid, maybe two. Uh, a refrigerator, a garage, yeah. <laughs> a TV, and a dog. Right? right, That was a nuclear and family. And a picket fence around the outside. <laughs> that was a nuclear family. But nowadays, it's only 18% of all households in America right. that are nuclear families defined that way. You talk a little bit in the book about uh, about the element of retirement and how the concept of retirement plays into uh, and and that level of health that we have, how those two kind of play into the into these uh, into this path we're headed into. Oh no, absolutely. I think uh, you know more and more people are realizing that retirement uh, has been oversold. In other words, that there are many good things about retirement, but also really bad things. You get disconnected, you get bored, uh, you get isolated, you get lonely. Uh, and that there's always something that we can do, either for pay or not for pay, even when we are in our late 60s or early 70s. And here's the most important, uh, I think, uh, one of the most important messages in the book, which is that we used to say that the future belongs to people in their 20s, to the young. Right. I actually make the opposite argument in this book. The future belongs to people above the age of 60, which is counterintuitive, but uh, this is becoming very quickly the largest age group in America and in other countries around the world. And it's going to be the largest consumer segment. And uh, remember, they're also staying and working, so they're also really important uh, in the um, in, in companies and other right. types of organizations. So the future belongs to people above the age of 60. So, Dan, we are we in are, luck. We're right, well, I'm getting close there. I'm a couple uh, me years too. away. But me we're going to be there in a couple of years. Me too. So then what then, how do you categorize a perennial? So a perennial is somebody who doesn't think or act their age. So it's people who essentially refuse to comply with uh, age stereotypes. So meaning, for example, people who decide, well, I can learn at any age, not only when I'm young, yeah. or I can work at any age, or I can do this or that at any age without having to conform with, uh, you know, the kinds of norms or stereotypes uh, that tradition has, uh, uh, you know, told us that, that we, should, uh, we should follow. And that this is really important because I think it opens up a universe of new possibilities and opportunities for people. And that's obviously, I think, where the technology comes back and ties in is because technology has just opened so many more doors to us for people at all ages these days. Absolutely. So actually, technology has uh, both a negative and a positive effect. The negative effect is that, as you know, uh, people in their 40s, in their 50s, they're being displaced by technology. Right. And so they find it very hard to find their footing and to switch to something else. But at the same time, technology also helps with that. Uh, for example, with online learning, which is becoming so important in the world, because it's so much easier for somebody in his or her 40s or 50s to actually learn via technology than having to move to another city and attend school and move into the dorm, right? Yeah. So technology has both effects, a negative one, but also a positive and enabling one. Is part of the goal then to also try and drive more of a, a level playing field for everybody when you're thinking about the impacts that that 
people in their 60s, 50s and 60s feel, and also in their 20s as well. Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, the perennial society is one in which opportunities are more widely available to more people. Uh, Because remember, I mean, under the old system, if you missed uh, a transition, let's say from uh, being a teenager to being an adult, if you miss a transition in terms of, for example, missing out on a promotion opportunity, you were kind of, uh, you know, left behind. Right. So I think a new perennial economy, I think, uh, is one in which uh, no matter what you do, you don't have to actually comply with these timings, with uh, each of these transitions at, at very specific moments in your life. Uh, and a lot of people actually fall, uh, you know, through the sideway here and they don't, uh, they cannot advance. Right. So I think uh, this new way of thinking about the economy, thinking about jobs, thinking about everything will help people who, uh, for whatever reason, uh, you know, don't get ahead in life at the moment they're supposed to, according to the old way of uh, doing things. We're talking with uh, Wharton's Mauro Guillen, who's the author of the book coming out on August 22nd, The Perennials, The Megatrends Creating a Post-Generational Society, so people can pre-order it right now. How then does this mindset around perennials potentially impact things like policy, like culture, like organization? Well, culturally, of course, I think uh, to the extent that we have more and more people following a perennial way of life, it's going to change everything, right? So we see, for example, uh, now um, workers who are grandparents asking for grandparent leave because <laughs> they want to spend time with their grandchildren, right? So so this is just uh, something that uh, was unimaginable like 20 years ago, right? And companies are having to, to adjust. But I think uh, the biggest, uh, I think, uh, effect will be on policymaking. So we need uh, uh, laws and we need regulations to get updated, to recognize that, uh, you know, age is not a determinant as it used to be, that now we live longer and we stay healthier longer. And therefore, uh, some of the assumptions that we were making about uh, what is age appropriate and what is not uh, have, have to be abandoned. Do, do some of the changes that are kind of going on now in our culture around some of these areas, especially coming out of the pandemic, do they play into this, this at least the understanding more so about the need for policy change? Oh, absolutely. I think the pandemic was this uh, huge uh, event but also a policy experiment because uh, we introduced both companies and governments new measures to tackle the pandemic, but uh, measures that even after the pandemic are going to have a long-term impact, like, for example, remote work and remote learning. Uh, so I think uh, the, uh, the pandemic uh, was a watershed, was a before and after kind of moment, and things got accelerated. And especially, I think, this transition towards what I call uh, the post-generational or the perennial society mm. was accelerated by the pandemic. We've t- talked a lot uh, in the past about innovation, and you talk about that as well in the scope of all of these changes going on and how that's going to impact innovation as well. Oh, absolutely. Because uh, just to give you an example, uh, the workplace is becoming so much more intergenerational or multi-generational with uh, people of very different ages working side by side. And we know from research, for example, research conducted here at the Wharton School, that more diverse teams are more innovative, more creative, and more productive. And uh, so far, we have been thinking about that diversity at the team level uh, in terms of uh, gender or in terms of uh, ethnicity uh, or background in general. Uh, But now I think we also need to start thinking about it in terms of age. So age diversity is also conducive to more creativity, productivity, and innovation. Are businesses ready to accept a lot of these changes as well? Not really, because uh, still what we see is that uh, companies, especially larger companies, continue to discriminate uh, against uh, both young and old workers, depending on what the issue is at stake. They they tend to uh, attribute certain types of behavior to young people versus old people. And I think uh, those kinds of assumptions need to also be abandoned. Are we starting, though, to see maybe small elements 
of some of these changes taking place at this point. And, and, you know, at some point we'll get to, you know, more larger adoption of a lot of these concepts. Oh, no, absolutely. So uh, the number of companies that are thinking about uh, promoting a multi-generational workshop, I'm sorry, workplace is uh, growing by leaps and bounds, starting from a very low level, of course. We're also seeing that more and more people above the age of 30 are attending school, most of them virtually. Uh, So in the United States, more than 30% of the population right now is attending some kind of learning program online. Uh, so that's a big change. And uh, we're also seeing, for example, the uh, the rise of uh, multi-generational households. Uh, so it's a still below 10%, uh, but that's that's a start. Right? We, we have a long uh, road ahead of us. So for, with that idea specifically, is that going to be more broad-based, the multi-generational family, do you think? Because I, I think to a degree it has been kind of culturally set in certain segments and not more broad-based. Well, sure. Uh, it has a lot to do with immigration. And uh, with uh, cultures, uh, immigrant cultures, where the extended family plays a very important role. Uh, but now we are seeing uh, more and more families from the mainstream actually thinking that maybe a multi-generational household where you have uh, more than two generations living together yeah. is actually a great arrangement uh, that uh, some researchers at Columbia University have uh, uh, you know, found that uh, actually leads to better health outcomes, even it's right. including mental and physical health. So I think that this is also growing. And uh, don't think about multi-generational households as poor households. In, in fact, the poverty rate uh, among multi-generational households is only half as, uh, as high as the poverty rate for the overall American population. And the uh, average income of a multi-generational household is $120,000, which is way above the median income for the United States, which is more like fifty dollars or $60,000. Uh, so uh, there's an increasing number of multi-generational households that have... Uh, you know, chosen this arrangement, not uh, for economic reasons, but uh, because they wanted to, uh, you know, experiment with this new way of life. How much do you see this really kind of enveloping kind of a global perspective, you know, having this play out in, in all in countries around the world? Oh, this is going on in many countries around the world. It's going on in Europe. It's going on in Japan. It's going on in China. It's going on in, in many different parts of the world. It's not just the United States. So then does the public then even have a, a, a greater voice in the say with a lot of these changes that are going on, the policy, kind of the corporate structure, because perennials will be relied on more, do you think? Well, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, this perennial way of life, what I call the perennial way of life, is just something that gives all of us more opportunities at different points in time during our lifetimes. So I think this is something that will empower all of us. Uh, again, it's kind of uh, removing uh, like handcuffs or a chain that uh, we used to, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, essentially constraining us uh, in terms of what we could do. I think that is, in the end, the effect of this. What do you think is is the takeaway for people when they when they read the book? The big uh, takeaway, I think, is uh, you don't have to organize your life in terms of your age. There are constraints, of course. We do get old, and we lose uh, certain kinds of abilities as we grow older. Uh, but I think that age is not the determining factor, that the sky is the limit, that you can do all sorts of things at different ages. And by the way, we've also seen that in entrepreneurship. How many entrepreneurs uh, you know, do we have in the United States yeah. who are below the age of 20? They're teenagers, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, used, that didn't used to be the case 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Entrepreneurs were a little bit older than that. And by the way, at companies now, what we have is a lot of people reporting to a boss who is younger. That also wasn't the case at IBM, let's say, which was the quintessential American corporation sure. in the 1950s, right? Does it change then the mindset around the older generational worker coming back and, and providing insight and, and impact on the company longer term? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, what we're seeing in the workplace is increasingly this inverse mentoring 
or reverse mentoring. So younger workers uh, also mentoring older workers. And of course, older workers contributing to the development of uh, younger workers as well. So once again, uh, the, the, the effect at the end is to eliminate age as a primary determinant of all of these social relationships at work. Morrow, it's a great book. Thank you very much for coming in. Greatly appreciate the time today. Thank you for inviting me, Dan. You got it. Morrow Guillen, Wharton professor, who is uh, author of the upcoming book, The Perennials, uh, The Megatrends, Creating a Post-Generational Society. It is out on August the 22nd, and it is available for pre-order currently. Thank you for listening to The Ripple Effect. We hope you found this episode informative and engaging. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review so that we can continue to bring you the best insight from the Wharton School.